Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is February 4th, 2015. This is episode 1512 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a guy coming on called Professor CJ. Prof CJ will be on from the Dangerous History Podcast. We're going to be talking about history and personal liberty today. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, guys, look, I know that you guys out there, by and large, believe in the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms. And many of you know that the best way you can actually show that you believe in the right to keep and bear arms is to... Keep and bear arms, and I'm all for it. And, you know, the liberal media always tries to incrementally uh, take away rights by saying, well, at least there should be a license, at least there should be training. But even when a moron speaks, sometimes the truth should come out of their mouth, and should take training is the truth. Now, should take training in order to have the right to personal self-defense? No. But if you choose to exercise that right, it makes sense to take the personal responsibility and gain the training. The place to do that is Frank Sharp Jr. Fortress Defense Consultants. So you will find them at FortressDefense.com. Every member of this audience that's taken training with Frank Sharp's team has come back to me and said, unbelievable. Best training they've ever had. And many times people have taken training for the first time went, you know, I don't, I didn't really understand why I should go take a professional training class. Figured I knew what I was doing. And by and large, I really kind of did. I knew how to operate my weapon, knew how to draw my weapon, knew how to identify a threat. Felt pretty prepared. But when I took training, I realized how much I didn't know. You want to find out what you don't know? Go take that professional training for the first time at FortressDefense.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Roll, the original survival podcast sponsor, the sponsor that's been here since, well, almost since we've been here. Six months into the show, I was finally willing to take a sponsor because I thought we could actually you know, give them some business. And Vic Rontala had already been knocking on the door for 90 days, going, look, I know you're small now, but I know where you're going. I want to be part of this. I want to support you. So we gave them the first ever sponsorship slot at thesurvivalpodcast.com, and they've been with us ever since. That was all the way back in January of 2009. Seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? We were just about to have the swearing-in of the current president. That's how long ago that was. And uh, they're still here and still supporting us. They have everything you need for your prepping, from practical to tactical, guns and gardens, and everything in between. You'll find them at safecastle.com. Remember, they do give their discount membership club away for free. Everybody else pays 49 bucks for it. But if you're a member of my support brigade, which is 50 bucks a year, you get it for nothing. That means it pretty much pays for your first year of MSB. On that note, Consider joining the MSB. You'll get discounts to many of our sponsors and about 60 companies in total. Buying the stuff you buy anyway, so your membership will pay for itself. You get a lot of other cool stuff. Content that's available nowhere else. Free ebooks, about $200 worth. You can download on day one every episode of the Survival Podcast in zip files all the way back to episode one and more. You can find out more by going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on members. And when you do and sign up, hey, you'll be part of an exclusive club, the Member Support Brigade Club. And I thank you for doing that because it is how we pay the bills around here. 
And if you've served our nation at home or abroad as a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter in law enforcement, military, or as a member of the Peace Corps, I do thank you for that service with a discount. Just email me before, not after, but before you join the Member Support Brigade, put service discount TSPC in the subject line. That's Tango Sierra Papa Charlie in the subject line. That way it won't go die in the spam box. And I'll get that discount code back to you. That email again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. For everybody else, if you want to send me email, that is the only email you need to know, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It all comes straight to my actual inbox, but using the initials TSPC as one word in that subject line will save you from spam hell. Because I don't dig everything out of there. I do my best, but frankly, I can't scan it all. Um, some of my email addresses have been around since the, the days of. You've got mail. Some of you know where that's from. Anyway, before I bring our guest on, let us go and take a look at the history segments. I have a history professor coming on, and it's time for the history segment. Kind of cool. Here's what I have from Alex Shrugged, who I think could be a history professor if he wasn't doing other things with his life. The Maroons of the New World and Mississippi State. The Passing of Amerigo. And the faithless are doomed. The Fifth Latern Council begins. Uh, I'm going to read the Maroons of the New World in Mississippi State. I just want to real quick mention, though, the passing of Amerigo. Uh, at the age of 57, Amerigo Vespucci does pass away this year, 1512, uh, who probably had a lot more success in spreading the news of the New World back to Europe than Mr. Columbus did. Uh, a guy that gets a, a, a footnote in most history classes that should probably get, well, a chapter. Anyway, let's read the Maroons of the New World in Mississippi State. African slaves begin arriving in numbers in 1512, and as might be expected, the number of escaped slaves went up in parallel. These are not simple folk. African slaves of this time are people with skills such as blacksmiths, tanners, and jewelers. Unfortunately for the Spaniards, African slaves are also being drawn from the wealth of military prisoners taken during the Civil War in the Jolfo Empire, a region that encompasses modern-day Senegal and Gambia. These slaves have serious skills in fighting and surviving. They escape to the jungles of the Caribbean and Brazil in huge numbers. The Spaniards call them cinnamaroons, which means mountain runaways, indicating that they head through the hills at the first opportunity. They will eventually develop into an identifiable hereditary group and win their independence from the Dutch in 1760. Negotiated by a Maroon living in Boston who had learned to read and write. Obviously, this is my take by Alex Shrugged. Obviously, this is also where we get the word Maroon, meaning abandoned or stuck, as most African slaves were when they were brought to the Americas. The name Maroons also applies to Mississippi State University football team. Beginning in 1865, the Mississippi A&M began playing football under the name the Maroons. They also used the name the Aggies in 1932 when they became Mississippi State College, and then they took the name on Bulldogs. But the name Maroons was still used well into the 1960s, even after they had officially adopted the Bully Bulldog as their mascot. Well, interesting little tidbit there. What I want to point out is that for some of the slaves that were brought over here, this was actually their shot at freedom because they were not willing to capitulate, and they were willing to fight back. So where they were imprisoned as prisoners of war, there was a lot of guards and you know, real prison and stuff like that. But see, you can't keep a slave in prison. A slave has to be given some freedom of movement so that they can actually do the labor that you've insisted that they do. So I'm not saying it's a good life or anything, but I'm saying if you have a person that's 
you know, working as a blacksmith, you have to put a hammer and an anvil and fire and pointy shit in their hands. And they just might make that pointy shit pointier, stab you in the throat, and escape. And I'm not saying that maybe we need to be making pointy shit and stabbing politicians in the throat. We can learn something here. We don't have to capitulate. We don't have to give in. We can fight back. It's our right as sovereign individuals. That's my take by Jack Spierko. And with that, I want to introduce our special guest, Professor CJ, or as he calls himself on his site and on his podcast, The Dangerous History Podcast, Prof. CJ. And with that, hey, CJ, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. Hey, uh, I was just listening to a couple of your podcasts, the Dangerous History Podcast, uh, in prep for the show. I was really digging it, but, you know, I always try to get the audience in touch with the guests so they know who they're, they're, they're hearing from. Uh, what led you into the world of history in the first place? I mean, you're actually a, a history teacher, uh, correct? And, and how'd you get there? Yeah, that's, that's my, you know, full-time career. I, I teach college history, um, and getting interested in history is something that goes way back. I was like probably about 10 when uh, I've always been a big reader. And way back around age 10 or so, I started reading a ton of history, you know, not just novels and stuff like that. And uh, just just kept pursuing it, pursuing it, always was kind of doing it for fun. And, um, you know, at the same time I was doing that, I realized eventually that I had a knack for teaching. You know, I, I taught guitar lessons when I was a teenager. Um, later when I was in college, I taught test prep classes for Kaplan. So I'm, I'm one of those people, I guess, who's always just sort of had a knack and a passion for teaching. But, um, it took me a while, as, as stupid as it sounds, it took me a while to put together, you know, how much I enjoyed reading and learning about history and how interesting I found it. With the fact that I also was into teaching and to kind of say, duh, uh, maybe that's something I should pursue. So when I did uh, go to college, which I admit I m maybe shouldn't have gone when I did because I was one of those people who wasn't quite sure, you know, what he was going to do. But anyway, I picked history just because it was something I was already interested in and I lucked out, had a bunch of good history professors and, uh, then kind of gradually the, the light bulb came over my head that, you know, teaching history would be a pretty cool way to make a living. So, and I kept at it, eventually got a master's degree, and, uh, and now I teach college history. That's awesome. You have a master's degree, unlike the lady that I saw on TV that definitely should have went to college because she said she even has a master's degree and can't find a job. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot going around. Uh, and I'll tell you, <laughs> since I've been in my current job, I'm, I'm actually somewhat of a bigwig in, uh, the department at my college. And I've been involved in hiring lots of, uh, social science faculty for the school. Yeah. And being on the other side of the curtain has been very educational because, I mean, there, the amount of degree inflation going around is incredible. We have dozens of people with PhDs, and I don't teach at a big fancy school. We have dozens of people with PhDs applying for each and every job that we have, and somehow I managed to nail one of these jobs with a master's degree. So Amazing. I guess just right place, right time. Um, so you have what you consider a, a totally different approach to history or a, a significantly different approach to history uh, from most historians. Uh, what, what makes it different, and, and why have you taken that approach? Yeah, it's uh, 
I wouldn't say it's unique to me. I, I'm, you know, kind of standing on the shoulders of giants who've come before, but it's definitely not the main mainstream approach that most historians, whether they're academic or just kind of, you know, popular historical writers take. Um, one thing is that I'm very interested in money, power, and violence. Um, for some reason, not only do I find those things fascinating, but I think those are some of the most important things to understand uh, kind of how the world has worked and how the world currently works, those three things. And at least as far as academic history goes, in recent decades, the Iron Triangle has been race, class, and gender. Like that's the prism. One or more of those things is what they want to look at everything in history through. And there's nothing wrong with race, class, and gender and with looking at those issues. And certainly, you know, when historians first started to look at that stuff, it revealed a lot of gaps, you know, things no one had looked at before. But when that just sort of becomes its own little trap of a paradigm, you know, that becomes limiting and uh, that tends to then blind you to other things. So uh, my iron triangle is money, power, and violence. And I'm always, always very skeptical, uh, even cynical maybe, regarding anyone who has or who wants to have power, um, especially the political class. And that's, you know, regardless of ideology, party, anything like that, anytime I'm looking at any society, whether it's ancient or modern, my default position is the people who have power or who are trying to get power uh, do not deserve the benefit of the doubt. So um, I'm also very interested in any sort of useful and relevant history, uh, not just an interesting trivia. You know, that's th- there are a lot of people who are kind of into history in, in sort of a shallow sense. And, you know, it's just a it, interesting trivia. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm interested in stuff that's really kind of useful and relevant and, and really explains things. So, you know, I, I want to I just want to try and get my own take on history as close to the truth as possible, even if that means I got to uh, blow up some sacred cows every now and then. So, and then you started this podcast called the Dangerous History Podcast. What, what are your goals there? What do you hope people get out of it? I mean, isn't it enough to, uh, to be in front of a, a group of college students multiple times every day, uh, doing that? What, what's made you kind of broaden out to, uh, mainstream, I guess you'd say? Yeah, um, I absolutely love teaching my history classes. I really enjoy my job just about every day. And I have to give credit. Another way I lucked out in my job is that the, uh, the the chain of command above me at my college is really good on academic freedom for faculty. They don't try and uh, micromanage what you teach and how you teach it as long as you're covering sort of the basic outlines of the course material. And so I go way the heck out there in a lot of you know, people might be shocked some of the things that I, I get into and teach. And I've had my bosses observing me while I'm while I'm going over like really out there radical stuff. But um, even even with the amount of leeway I have, I just wanted to have something else to do where um, first to have even more creativity on my part to really cover the things I want the way I want to cover them in as much depth as I want to. And even in my situation where I have a lot of leeway in my classes, still, you know, you got to kind of gallop through whatever years you're covering that semester or whatever. And that can limit, you know, exactly how much you can cover a certain topic. And then the other thing is, you know, I get a few hundred students a year coming through my classes and, uh, and that's great, but I wanted to widen my audience. So, 
you know, since I was already a podcast junkie as a listener, I finally, uh, it dawned on me, hey, if I, if I start a podcast, I can teach history exactly how I want to do it. And potentially, uh, anybody with an internet connection could be, uh, my audience. So, you know, I, I hope people get entertained and educated, but I also hope that, um, that they get, you know, something deeper out of it than just that, because I think there's there's lessons, at least that I see in history. Let me ask you a question. Whenever I say that our children and young people today are taught revisionist history, I'm labeled a conspiracy theorist, a quack, I'm told I don't know what it is to be a teacher, that, you know, on and on and on. In your professional opinion, is revisionist history taught in American schools today? Um... Yeah, and the and the term revisionist history, um, there, there's kind of more sides to it, I think, than people often realize. Um, revisionist history, all it really means is that you're kind of questioning and challenging older, pre-existing, established narratives of kind of what what a particular historical problem or era was about. So, you know. A lot of even like libertarian history actually is revisionist history. You know, when a libertarian historian goes back and and uh, questions something you know that the government did way back when, um, if they're challenging the kind of standard narrative that's been around a long time, that's revisionism. So, um, to me, revisionism, yes, revisionist history is taught, but um, revisionist doesn't necessarily mean bad. Sure. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily mean that you know people are going out and deliberately um, uh, making stuff up or, or changing things in any sort of a way. Revisionism can be good if you're going back and again, kind of skeptically looking at what the establishment has told you. Is the we're truth. actually so, getting into a place where words are becoming important again here, right? So yeah, the problem yeah. is that the word is not the right word because here's what I mean when I say that. I mean that children are taught about a historical event, and a whole bunch of really important stuff that should have been in there is omitted because we don't look quite so good if we include that. So that would be uh, teaching with major omissions that should be con continued. Or people are taught things that simply are not true. If you look at American revolutionary uh, mythology, there's a whole lot of things that I was taught that were fact, that were on tests, in in grade school and junior high and high school that now I know did not happen. They just didn't. Mm -hmm. It's not, uh, you know, uh, Betsy Ross making the flag, mock yeah. pitcher, things like this, Paul Revere's ride. It's not that the guy didn't ride anywhere, but he, you know, you, you know, we were had to memorize a poem. And, it, and yeah. it, this is it, somebody else really gets the credit for what happened there. I mean, that's what I mean when I say that, that we have doctored historical record to fit the narrative and agenda of the people in power now. Right, right. Maybe revisionist isn't the word for that. Yeah, um, in a way, I, I would say that to challenge those stories is to be revisionist. Hmm. In a way, because you're kind of challenging the, the standard version in a way. Um, so, you know, if, if you're, if you're asking, are students generally taught history that's full of a lot of, uh, important 
gaps and omissions that are, you know, not an accident or that are full of things that are there that are not correct or didn't happen. I'd absolutely agree with that. Okay. And, uh, and, and, and my, my proof for why I agree with that would be how many students I've had over the years who come through my classes who, you know, either at the end of the semester or, or later or whatever, uh, come up to me and basically say, wow, you know, I, I never realized how much I didn't know, how many holes were in the story I was believing, you know, how many things I used to believe that are just false. I actually, one time, uh, I, I still remember to this day, even though it was a bunch of years ago, I had one student come uh, find me in my office after the semester was over and uh, shake my hand, look me in the eye and say, I want to thank you because you're the only teacher I've ever had who didn't just tell us bullshit. <laughs> hmm. So, you know, it's it's those Would those types of it, things. What's the right word for it? Is it false history? Is it inaccurate history? Because you're you're making a really valid point, something I didn't even think we would talk about. But I've determined that many words have been ruined. It's like a perfect example of a word that's been ruined in modern vernacular is rhetoric. All rhetoric is bad. Well, rhetoric, rhetoric is part of the trivium of classic education. It's empty rhetoric that might be a bad thing, but people have been conditioned to believe that word is just an immediate word that just puts people down, right? Rhetoric is bad. So right. what would, what is the right terminology for this inaccurate narrative or a, a narrative of a mission that we teach kids today? Because it does further the agenda of people in power, in my view. Yeah, and I would absolutely agree with that statement. Um, I, I don't know if I have like a simple, easy, you know, term for it. I, I guess it could be we could call it something like um, false revisionist history. <laughs> yeah, or or um, establishment propaganda, or yeah. or uh, mythology. Because yeah. in a lot in a lot of ways, a lot of standard history really is mythology in the way that like mythology you know was used in ancient societies to reinforce the tribe and uh, legitimize those in power you know it really is mythology in a way you know and i i think that we have to be careful with blaming the teachers for this sometimes I, i'm happy to blame the institutions um but like so one time i put out on the air i taught i says an aside on something i talked about the the mythical uh, charge of the polish cavalry at the tanks right which yeah. never happened and um so my i remember very clearly the history teacher that taught me that in high school that that happened and taught the whole class that it happened i guarantee you he didn't know that that was inaccurate information that someone taught him that Right. So yes. and today, right, if we have if you hear something today and you're like that something stinks, some doesn't feel that doesn't feel right. Five seconds on Google and you're at least on the trail of the truth or at least sure. on the trail of other viewpoints and, and more information. It, when I was in school in 1980s, you know, you went down to the, to the library and you broke out the Encyclopedia Britannica from 1972 which was the year I was born, that was the latest edition of the encyclopedia in my, in my library, right? Um, so I, I, we have to give a little leeway, I guess, to that, to people that are our age that have come up through that system because we didn't have this magical formula called the Internet that, that was able to do all this research. Yeah, yeah. And, and the tragedy is, to me regarding the internet is it's there literally for free, you know, in your pocket or on your computer 
are, are answers to everything and, you know, all the myths can be busted. But how many people are actually using the Internet on a regular basis to really learn stuff? And how many people are just using it, you know, for Facebook and Twitter and looking up celebrity gossip and all that? So, I mean, that's that to me is really tragic. And how much this false historical memes. Sure. Right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and people who don't. That says anyone can put anything on the Internet. And right. it says uh, Abraham Lincoln, 2006, and there's a picture <laughs> next to it. It's, it's, yeah, that's how it is. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, people, um, you know, aren't aren't given enough critical thinking skills, even when it comes to the internet, to be able to figure out for themselves truth from falsehood. So, you know, the the, uh, the bad information looks just as legit as the good information to a lot of these people. But um, um, anyway. Cool. So, um, you feel that a knowledge of history can be directly applicable to personal liberty and personal freedom. Why do you feel that way? Yeah, you know, I really think that because learning history, assuming you're doing it for real and and really trying to get to the root of the of the matter and the facts, um, one of the things pursuing history in that way does is it frees you from a lot of delusions. You know, it, it really, it ultimately, I found for me, it inoculated me against eating, what, what was it you, you said the other day in an episode? Was it bullshit soup? Bullshit soup, yes. Yeah, I, there you go. I feel the media has created a massive soup of all the information, and primarily it's a big steaming cup of bullshit. And you get to pick which line you stand in to receive your bullshit from and fight with the people on the other line. But in the end, you're both consuming a steaming cup of bullshit. Yeah, and, and I absolutely agree with that. And, and for me, at least, part of of making that realization and kind of you know stepping out of the usual paradigm and, and the party dichotomy and all that nonsense, uh, history was a key part in me kind of having that awakening because the more I started to learn – the reality of the past and the reality about all the supposed great leaders and whatever, um, the more I, I started to uh, – the lessons I learned, I would apply them to looking at the world around me right now. And so you know, I stopped believing in, in, uh, in politicians' rhetoric. I stopped believing in you know, the media's nonsense. I started to question everything and what have you. And um, you know, to me, anything that – causes your beliefs and understanding of the world to get closer to the truth is going to be empowering because it's going to allow you to prioritize like what is true and what is false and also what is important and what is not. And, you know, I'm sure you'd probably agree that so much, even, even if you set aside all the celebrity gossip and nonsense, so much even of the political coverage in our media is just crap that doesn't matter, you know, making exactly. making mountains out of ant piles and so on. And um, I found that I've gotten a great sense of of sort of peace and happiness just from setting that aside and not following like day to day party politics and all that sort of stuff. So I would agree. And I, here's another thing I would add to it. I think that like 
because of what we discussed earlier is true, that a lot of the information that we've been told is true, that we've grown up with, that we've had trusted teachers and educators tell us was true, that we've committed our life to, that we've said, I'm actually going to be, because I think, I think a lot of people underestimate kids and, and even at the high school age that, that they do remember a lot of what they're taught. And I think a lot of children tend to, as they come into young adulthood, remember more from classes like history than they do from, well, mathematics. Yeah. Um, because they're stories and we, we instinctively as humans remember stories. So you will actually, and this is why I think it's one of the, the, the things that's been targeted for corruption by those in power. You will make decisions in your life based on preconceptions because you believe things happened in the past. We, we do learn the lessons of history to a degree, even if it's not the right history. And if you take a person who's had, let's say 10 things that they remembered about history, that they're apps and probably forgot a thousand things that might have been true. But the ten things they remembered, you can go, not true, not true, not exactly true, true, but you know, and you and you can fill in all the blanks on these ten things, they start to go, Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Like it's an earth shattering thing for them. It's like, I was bullshitted about all of that. Now wait a minute. What else am I being bullshitted about? And the minute the person turns that corner, they become very difficult to control because no matter what you say to them, even when it's true, they want to know, how do we know this is true? Can I verify that this is true? And does this even really matter to me? And if I could just get everybody that listens to this show to have those three things instilled in them, you know, I think we'd be making a hell of a lot of progress. Yeah, people would be a, a lot more just productive in life in general and they'd also be a lot happier. <laughs> they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be just getting obsessed with, you know, stupid crap that doesn't matter very much. Um, I, I've had so many students who sometimes I feel kind of bad because it's like the whole waking up in the matrix metaphor, you know, I, I go in there and I spend a whole semester just like blasting bazookas full of red pills at these poor students. And, you know, the ones that are worth reaching, they get it. You know, there's, there's always just the, the yahoos that just kind of, you know, sleepwalk through the whole thing. But, um, you know, the, the ones that are worth talking to, they, they really get it. And, you know, they go through the same process so many of us have when we really kind of wake up out of the matrix of, at first it's kind of painful because all your, all your, you know, nice fairy tales are, are revealed as not true. But then ultimately, as you, as you kind of go through the process of figuring out what's really true, um, you, you end up better for it. You know, you, you end up in a, in just a, a wiser, um, more empowered, more content sort of a place. You have a, a term you use that I really liked when I, when I read it, and it is a scholar warrior. How does that relate to preparedness? Yeah, uh, the scholar warrior is a concept that comes out of ancient, uh, Chinese Taoism. You know, going back to, I don't know, three, four hundred BC, something like that, uh, Lao Tzu and those guys. And, um, I've, I've long been a fan of, of, uh, Taoism. I, I find it a very, very interesting philosophy with a lot of, uh, useful lessons for life. And one, one concept that I really, I really like and, and have kind of taken to heart from it is the idea of a scholar warrior. It's almost sort of like a Renaissance man, I guess. It's the idea that, um, an individual pursues a, a process of self-cultivation, which includes uh, cultivating a whole bunch of 
diverse skills and areas of knowledge. And the idea is, you know, that you become a better, happier, more well-rounded person in the process. And also one of the side benefits is that the more you cultivate different skills and different areas of knowledge, the better prepared you are to handle whatever the hell life throws at you. In other words, you become a more versatile human being. So, um, you know, the more knowledge and skills you pursue when disaster strikes, you know, if the shit does hit the fan for you or, you know, even worse, if Tiat Walkie strikes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the more, the more skills you have under your belt, the more options, the more ways you'll have, the tools you'll have to, uh, to deal with disaster. So, um, the idea also is of balance. The, the idea that you should have hard skills and soft skills. You know, the, the ancient Chinese Taoists would pursue things like sword fighting and martial arts and simultaneously also be pursuing a knowledge of poetry and music and art and things like this. And, uh, even skills that don't seem immediately useful, you know, um, in, in sort of a nuts and bolts way still can have value. You can still learn from them and are still worth pursuing. So just maximizing the versatility of yourself as an individual. Very cool, man. Um, what is true and what is false when it comes to the notion of American exceptionalism? I hear all the time from the talking heads like Sean Hannity about American exceptionalism, and I don't necessarily believe that there isn't a such thing as American exceptionalism, but I don't know that they... Well, a good friend of mine, Nick Ferguson, often says, I don't think that word means what you think it means when you say it. <laughs> and and that's how I kind of feel about those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, those people drive me nuts. I, I can't listen to things like right-wing, uh, you know, standard mainstream right-wing talk radio and that sort of thing anymore. I used what to be able to. What hippie college professor? Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a, I'm a left-wing, uh, crazy hippie communist who believes in the free market and, and has a safe full of uh, assault weapons, right? Yeah, so, there's lots of those out there. They're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. You can't ever get rid of them. Yeah. So um, it, as far as American exceptionalism goes, I mean, a lot – I think that a lot of the ideas that America was supposed to be about – are fine ideas, right? Ideas of, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, um, unalienable individual rights, all that good stuff. I think those are great ideas. And um, the problem, though, is that the reality does not and never has matched up with the documents and, and the flowery words and the speeches. And American exceptionalism... To me, should be the idea that, you know, this country is going to follow better principles and is not going to engage in all the bad stuff that other countries do, you know, other, other, other governments do, I should say, to be more accurate. Uh, but instead, the United States uh, government has been able to exploit and turn this notion of American exceptionalism from the idea that we should hold ourselves to a higher standard when it comes to things like rights and liberties. And this has been flipped around into this like crazy jingo nationalism, this, you know, USA, USA, Team America stuff. Sure. And ultimately morphed into the idea that whatever America does is good because it's America that is doing it. 
And so, you know, even though some activity might be something we would absolutely condemn if China or somebody did it, uh, when we do the same thing, suddenly you can't criticize it. It's, you know, um, because we're America, by definition, what we do is good. So um, that, that's that's what I would say as do, far as like – Do you think that flows two ways as well? In other words, at times it may be the case that – what we do is maybe necessary, maybe it's not preferable, but under the circumstances it's necessary or it's the way it goes, um, killing people in war. If you're going to go to war, you're going to kill people. Now, there are things that we've agreed upon, Geneva, Hague, et cetera, that are uh, unacceptable war crimes, et cetera. But in the end, you go to war, you kill people. Right. And we may turn around and say, well, look what they did. And what they did is no different than we, what we did, and I'd prefer no one get killed, but if we're going to have a war, people are going to get killed. And there's no difference between the way we did it and the way they did it, but it's wrong just because it's not us. Right. Yeah, that's definitely been a, um, a centerpiece of a lot of American propaganda, especially in wartime. And uh, it relates to something I talked about on a recent podcast episode, the lie by omission, which – is probably the most effective form of, of lie uh, in propaganda, at least in modern times, where you tell part of the story, but you selectively leave things out. And that can be very effective related to wartime because, like, let's say you're in a war with another country, and let's say, you know, which is usually the case, both sides are guilty of, you know, things that should be considered war crimes or atrocities. And what... You know, your side will eventually do is to, you know, tell all the enemies atrocity stories in gory detail, sometimes adding a bunch of embellishments or even fabricating some and then censor from your own public any bad things that your side does. And so then your people get just the, the enemy's misconduct. They don't get the story of your own misconduct and then the the unfortunate part is that oftentimes this wartime propaganda ends up being the official narrative kind of the standard version of the history when the war is over and so to me that's a case where revisionism performs a useful function right to go back and look at look at the facts try to get the whole story and figure out you know is our side as pure good as we're told we are? Is their side as pure evil as we're told that we are? You know, uh, World War One is probably the most egregious example of this, where um, America was getting all kinds of stories of German atrocities, many of which were totally fabricated or at least greatly exaggerated, and was not told about any of the naughty things the British or the French were doing. You know, and and we we have a tendency, especially in today, just because you know the Nazis happened to look back at Germany during World War One and like assume they're already pure evil. But yeah. of course in, in World War One Germany was just kind of a typical European country at the time. We we also tend to not realize that a lot of the sentiment that enabled Nazi Germany, not the same actions, but the sentiment that enabled those actions was very prevalent here. And things like the, the Nazi eugenics programs we had stuff like that going on here. It was almost like, like when World War II happened, like, oh, we can't do that now. But there was there was some of that type of thinking and, and actions behind it going on here with, well, certain people just shouldn't reproduce. 
Right. Yeah. And it's unconscionable now that the United States would have ever had that position. But I think we actually, of all nations in the world, had the first laws to actually enforce that type of thinking. And if I remember the documentary I watched on this, right, we were actually congratulated by the Germans for being more decisive in making that decision than they were. Yeah, when the Nazis first came to power in the early 30s, they uh, felt like they were behind America in terms of eugenics. And, and there are documents of Nazi leaders saying like, wow, we need to really catch up with those Americans. They really know how to deal with the undesirables over there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's dark stuff. And, and I understand why Americans who consider themselves patriotic would like not want to hear that, you know, would just like la, 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 la when they hear that sort of information. But I mean, I look at it as like bad news that's true is oftentimes the most important stuff that you really need to hear and you really need to, you know, digest and come to grips with because, you know, if, like, let's say you, you had, you know, cancer growing in you. Wouldn't you rather the doctor tell you the bad news than say, man, I don't want to ruin his day. I'll just, I'll just keep that quiet. Um, you know, if, if your country is not what you thought it was cracked up to be, wouldn't you want to know it or would you want to still, you know, keep continuing to believe, uh, all, all the, all the mythology, all the fairy tales? Yeah. And I think there is a tendency for people to want to, to continue to believe mythology and fairy tale. Like, it's like, they, they, they do the la 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 thing. They don't want to know. I've seen people get very upset and shut down when they realize you're not just some nut job. You're actually, the fact that you're telling them the truth is more upset than the fact that you would, might have been telling them a lie. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, oh, it's not confirmation bias. What's the, there, there's an actually Perception like a bias. Oh no, there, there's something else I'm trying to think of, but I, but I just can't. Normal uh, C bias? Not normal C bias. Shoot, it's it's a psychological term for how most people, when they're presented with information, even if it's totally factual, that contradicts their beliefs, they will just like shut themselves off to it. You know, it'll just be like pounding on a on a wall. Um, something like confirmation bias. I don't know. I forget. But uh, yeah, that that's definitely a real thing, and I see it all the time. Where, um, you know, I'll have students who it doesn't matter like how much documentation I can show them to back up some uncomfortable truth I'm trying to tell them. They'll just, you know, shut it, shut it out and, and, you know, I'm rubber, you're glue and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, actually, by the way, just this morning I was teaching, uh, the progressive era in one of my U.S. history classes and I was actually talking about, uh, the eugenics of the progressives and how, you know, people like Margaret Sanger were into, into eugenics and um and i actually uh mentioned samuel prescott bush who was an early progressive and also dabbled a bit in the eugenics uh cause so uh that that's always a good one because students you know recognize the bushes they recognize the name they know they know the family so i always have fun whenever i can drop uh you know politicians with the same last names as as modern people in the media I, I, I can sound like a genius now. It's known as Bayesian bias or conservatism bias. Ah, uh, but it's only because I had the, the, the massive tool that is Google while you were talking to, to get yeah. information. But it's a tendency to revise one's belief insufficiently when presented with new evidence. So. Yeah, yeah. Even if and the evidence is valid, I'm just not going to believe it because I've always believed otherwise. 
And I actually think that's an interesting thing to look at because it is the number one thing that I encounter when I point out an inconsistency. But we just know that's true. They don't, people are usually smart enough not to say it that way, but you know, that's, you know, especially with the modern, uh, internet mythology, right? Like mm. you know, President Obama refused to to put his hand over his heart or salute during uh, the playing of the national anthem. And you listen to that and you go, whether or not I think this guy would do that as as a matter of principle or, you know, wouldn't be that. I, I, when I look at it as a politician, are you that stupid? Is any politician really that stupid to do something like that? And then you look it up and the picture, yes, is from a Veterans Day thing or something like that. But when they showed the picture of him, they were playing hail to the chief for him. And right. it's that type of thing. And then you, you tell somebody that, but they've, well, they've gotten that email like six times now, dude. Mm-hmm. So, well, it must be true. And you must just love Obama for pointing out that it's untrue. And that's that bias you're talking about. And that goes back to, you know, very long historical things like the American Revolution mythology and up to very modern things. And it's something that I don't really know if people understand that's what they're doing when they do it or if they just do it out of some kind of visceral reaction. Yeah. My understanding, um, of it as, as an amateur in the field, is that, you know, I, I've read a lot of like the psychological studies and experiments on the, on this sort of phenomenon because I'm interested in how people learn and why people believe what they believe. And my amateur understanding of it is that there are, you know, like evolutionary hardwired into the human brain, uh, tendencies towards that habit. But I, you know, those obviously can be overcome. There obviously are people walking around who don't just submit to their own biases and, Tragically, though, I, I think that a lot of the way modern education is done is simply the person who's the authority figure at the front of the room tells you things which you then, you know, memorize and believe and uh, accept as, you know, the gospel truth. And that's totally the opposite of any concept of encouraging young people to really go out and question things for them, you know, think for themselves and think critically and take things apart and really try and find out and set aside, you know, who's got authority, who's got fancy titles or anything like that. Throw all that crap in the garbage and try to figure out for yourself what is true, what is false and what you do and don't believe. So on that note, there's this mythology, I believe, of the good old days, the America that used to be. Where yeah. everybody had a fair shake. Yeah. Everybody could make money. And a guy with a, with a dead end job still had enough money to put food on the table and take care of his family and live a pretty decent life. And now that's all gone. And what, what say you? Is that, is that a reality? I mean, I, I think we can all agree that some things have gotten worse, but was sure. that, that, I always refer to that as the America we never were. Right? This, it, yeah. this, this image that only exists in the minds of, Patriotic conservatives who truly believe the GOP is out for me, right? You know, I mean, yeah. I just don't believe that. Maybe because I'm a little older, but I think the time period that people point to, you know, predates me and yourself. But it's the right. you know about the 1950s, about 1955 when men were still men and, and all and, and, and whatnot. Let's say, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, and and I would agree with you that the 50s is probably the most common one currently that people will hearken back to as some sort of golden era. And to be fair, um, you're right that a lot of conservatives will point back to that, but even liberals will because liberals will point back to that era and say, look, unions were a lot stronger, right? Mm, there was yeah. higher taxes, and that's why the economy was so good in the 50s because of higher taxes. That's why. <laughs> um, and, you know, to be fair, I have to say I, I'm not a really – I don't have good things to say about presidents in general because yeah. anyone who wants to be president is, is someone who immediately is shouldn't be trusted. But I have to say that Dwight Eisenhower – for all of his faults and imperfections, and I could rattle those off for an hour, is a better president than any president we've had since him. Uh, you so, know, we would agree on that. Um, and I'm not so sure that Ike really wanted to be president. He's yeah. one of the few people that both parties went to and said, we want you, right? And that was partly due to his popularity, but it was almost a kind of a thrust upon him. And then, there's mythology there too. I've I've sure. gone through what's his name, the video producer Oliver Stone's stuff mm-hmm. on that whole era, and think what you want about the guy. He uncovers a lot of reality where sure. Ike wasn't quite the hero, especially once he took office that we had him made out to be. But yet, yeah, I mean, would I trade Bush, Obama, any of these people for Ike Eisenhower if we could bring him back? It about a nanosecond. Yeah, I really would. And if you want me to point to another guy, kind of like after that, Andrew Jackson, we got to get back to. So that tells you I have pretty high high esteem for Ike Eisenhower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the topic of nostalgia, nostalgia, you know, the notion of good old days and golden ages and whatever. It's it's understandable why people might feel that way. I mean, part of it is. Everybody has problems in the present because the present is real life. So it's easy when you're looking back on previous eras to kind of, you know, not notice all the problems because you're not sure. living in it right now. But to me, there's kind of two types of nostalgia that, that, that apply to history. One of them is personal nostalgia, which is most often looking back on one's own childhood. And I guess that's part of why the 50s are so popular in that role right now, because all the baby boomers, that's when they were a kid. Sure. And if they had even a halfway de- – I mean, anybody who has a halfway decent childhood is going to have some nostalgia for it, uh, unless it's, like, truly horrific, you know. Yeah. And and if it's truly horrific, you probably are, are li- going to live in some sort of, you know, denial and repress a lot of it anyway. So, you know, you can understand that's, that's a big part of why someone today might be nostalgic for the 50s. Um, and – the problem, though, is you're looking back on a time when you were a kid, and of course, when you're a kid, if your parents are even halfway competent, they're taking care of you, right? They're, you know, putting food on the table, they're paying the bills, they're doing all this. You're not worried about that. So you can look back on when you were a kid and have this sense of, oh, everything was so simple and easy because, again, if you were a kid with decent parents, things were probably simple and easy for you when you weren't paying the bills, but, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great point that, cause I mean, right now, uh, it, I, I, my, my son's in his twenties. I'm a little bit more upfront with him about like the challenges of life and all, but 
and I've kind of like arrived at my level of of happiness too. I've got a successful business and what have you. But when I was in my my mid twenties and I was taking on being a stepfather and working my way up the chain, I was struggling all the time to make sure we had enough money and stuff like that. But you don't go tell an eight year old that. Sure. Right. You don't tell them about all of that. You want them to be happy. You you give them some level of a you know. When I lost a job, we explained things like, okay, we have to be more conservative with the heat and stuff like that now, and we can't be doing this until I get a new job, and you share some of that with them. But you never made them feel like, hey, you know what? We might not be able to pay the mortgage next month. So I yeah. think a lot of kids grow up without ever ever seeing that reality that their parents went through. And you know, we've had a lot of talk lately about the millennial generation and feeling like they're not accomplishing anything, there's no opportunity at all. And I've, I've said I think that mythology – has been so reinforced for so long now that the 22-year-old millennial looks around and goes, well, this all sucks, and it was all great back then. And that's actually hurting them a lot right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And, you know, the... It's, it's tough as a parent, just, uh, I guess, I guess, uh, on, on that note that, you know, I have two kids. They're, they're both still pretty young. Actually, one of them's about to turn 10, my older one. But I face the same challenge of, I want to explain to them, you know, how money works and how, you know, there are limitations. You can't just go to Disney World every single weekend because it's fun and, you know, that resources are limited and you have to make choices. Um, but at the same time, because they're still, you know, six and ten years old, I'm easing them into it, right? I'm, I'm doing it in little steps and not just like, you know, when my bank account is running low, I don't bludgeon my kids with it of, oh my God, we're going to get evicted soon or whatever. Uh, because that would be being a, a crappy parent. But I'm trying, at least with my own kids, to just gradually ease them into understanding, uh, how the world really works so that they won't end up with those, those, uh, delusions of, uh, you know, entitlement and, and the idea that everything needs to work out for you all the time perfectly and that stuff. Absolutely. So, um, how do you think we can really explain that? Because, I mean, my biggest concern right now is those people, those those 20-somethings and the teenagers, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think they really don't get it. I, and I think the ones coming out of college with a degree – really don't get it because i think you know i got kind of emotional in the show this week and i said when people say well no one made them take the debt yeah they did i'm sure mm -hmm. you see it in your classes when you're taught from second grade on that everybody goes to college and your parents tell you to go get a loan and it's okay you don't always just have to make somebody do something with a gun to their head you can coerce people into things and children naturally trust their parents mm -hmm. um so these kids are coming out with fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars in debt. They were told to take it. They were convinced it was a good idea, and now they're sitting there going, "I have to do what? I have to wait tables for my first job until I figure out somebody to give me an internship somewhere or something, and I'm going to work ten years before I make shit." Really? That's yeah. not what I was told my whole life. So how do we explain to those kids? Yeah, that's the way it is, and that's mm -hmm. more importantly, that's always been the way that it's been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that gets back to the, the concept of good old days and nostalgia too. Um, you know, there's always been something, right? There's always been some challenge. Um, now there's the challenge of so many people getting outrageous student loans and then having trouble getting jobs. But of course, if you 
graduated from college in 1968, you might get drafted and sent to a rice paddy in Southeast Asia, right? So, you know. <laughs> Boy, that, that, that puts it in a little bit of perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, young people have always faced challenges, right? Let's put it that way. Um, that, that said, you know, I sympathize with them. I, I really do. I, I've got student loans. I, I don't have the, you know, super outlandish crushing student loans that some people do. I, I have, you know, below what, what's typical, especially for someone with a master's degree. Um, you know, I, I got a lot of scholarships and things like that. But, you know, I can understand because, I mean, the reason I even went to college in the first place, and I'm like maybe half a generation younger than you. Um, so I'm like a late X or early wire. I'm right on the, the sort of cusp there. Okay. And the main reason I initially went to college was just because it was what everybody, everybody knew. That's what you do, right? And your parents and your guidance counselors and everybody who you're supposed to trust, they're all saying the same thing. I go to college. Don't worry too much about loans. Don't worry. It's totally worth it. You'll make so much more money and have so many more opportunities. Just go to college. It's, it's the golden ticket. And, to be fair to those those uh, those authority figures who are telling people that the the guidance counselors and parents of you know the 1980s or the early 1990s they were boomers and one thing I will say the boomers did have easier was going to college was a crap load less expensive that's in true the 60s that's, that's ex- but of course that was because the government helped with guaranteed loans and and what have you. I mean that and what I mean is that's why it's gone up. Like if you subsidize something, you'll get more of it. Right? And if you subsidize something, it will become more expensive. It's it's counterintuitive thinking. But yeah. if yeah, yeah. you start making loans available to everybody and colleges start putting new additions and wings and hiring new faculty and stuff and they're they're building in a growth market and they can raise the price and the student can pay because they can get the money then those rates will go up. So what started out like as a good thing, the the GI Bill and, 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 and tuition assistance and stuff, just seems to me to have run amok, and it's directly why these colleges can charge so much money, because you can't tell me if students couldn't just go out and borrow $10,000, $20,000 a year with no credit, you know, with their parents signing for them in, in this guaranteed payback market, the tuition could be as high as it is. It would never work. The, the colleges right. would have to be more competitive. Yeah, yeah. It, it is just basic economics 101. When you, when you subsidize the hell out of something, you're going to drive the cost up. I mean, that's, that's just like water flowing downhill at the end of the day. Um, the boomers had the luck of timing where many of them came along when, when those sorts of loans were just becoming available and, and grants and things like that. But they came along before there had been decades of all that money being pumped into college to drive the prices up. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so they exactly. kind of got in early before the inflation kicked in on the cost of education. So, and to be I honest, mean, that is an opportunity that the boomers got and even my generation got the tail end of it that the modern generation doesn't get. I mean, if we're going to be honest about it. Yeah, yeah. To me, that is that is something that you can go back and you can look at hard numbers and say, yes, that is one place where the boomers did have, you know, uh, um, an advantage in terms of being able to get a college education with very little student loan debt. So, um, I, I can I can kind of sympathize with with the my current students as far as you know not having the timing on that. At the same time, though, you're right that I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day. 
you, you bear responsibility for believing it. I mean, you know, I take responsibility for the student loans that I have currently. You know, I wish I didn't have them. I'm glad I don't have that much. But, um, you know, it was me. I allowed myself to be, you know, kind of nudged into doing what I did and getting the degrees I get. I, I, I don't regret getting the degrees I got because I, I love my job. But, you know, there are days certainly when, I, when I'm feeling kind of down at it and I look at my student loan balance and go, damn, I wish I didn't have that. Well, yeah, but imagine if you had that loan balance and you were currently working as a bartender. Yeah, exactly. Right? You might feel a lot more uh, resentful. So, yeah. like, when I still believed in getting debt to buy shit you didn't really need, I bought a boat, right? And I, I had a pretty low boat payment. It was a couple hundred bucks a month, and it was like a three-year loan because it was a used boat. So it wasn't that big a deal. And all spring and summer and fall long, when I was out partying my boat every weekend, I get my boat payment, book out, 196 bucks and 50 cents. Write that check, send it in with a smile. In February, when I had to write that check, and I looked out at the boat, and there was icicles hanging off it, it's the same payment, I have the same income, but I didn't feel real good about it. And I imagine if I feel that way about a boat when it's 60 grand worth of debt and it's about a job and you ain't got one or the one you have has absolutely no link whatsoever to the fact that you have a degree that you might feel a little bit more angry than I did about the icicles on my boat. Yeah. Yeah. And I have so many friends and relatives who are roughly of my generation or a bit younger. Uh, many of them have more student debt than I do. And you're right, where they'll end up either doing some menial job, you know, unloading boxes at Target at four in the morning or something, mm -hmm. or they'll end up in a decent career maybe, but it's some job that, you're right, they either don't need a college degree at all or it has nothing to do with the degree that they got. I mean, I, I've got, uh, you know, family members who are doing pretty well. Some of them making more money than me, but they, they wasted a lot of time and money. On their degrees. Well, people have a hard time with this fact. And, you know, when I used to run regular companies and I, I did all of the things a company owner is supposed to do, you know, to build their business and make connections. I went to chamber of commerce meetings. I would serve on, you know, different committees through different chambers of commerce. And, you know, we would sponsor this or that and what have you. So you, you do this so you can talk to other presidents and CEOs and things like that. And this would come up and I talked to some people of some Pretty big companies, and they're like, "Yeah, we're hiring right now. If you know anybody, you know that you could refer to us, or it would be great." Yeah, okay. What are you hiring for? And they'd be hiring CSRs, customer service reps, right? And you know, what are your requirements? And they'd be like, "Well, we want them to have this, 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 two years of experience and a, and a degree." I'm like, "What the hell does a person doing that job need a degree for?" And the response I would get would be something to the effect: "If there's so many people out there that need jobs with degrees right now, I might as well get somebody with a degree." Yeah, it's and kind of a basic sorting mechanism. If you're a millennial, that has to piss you off. I yeah. mean, that has, that just has to fly in the face of everything you've been told your whole life. Yeah, and I do what I can, you know, I it I'm I'm there to teach history, so I can't I can't cover this stuff all the time, but sure. I do I do try to periodically talk to my classes a little bit about this sort of stuff and just, you know, in in sort of Friendly, gentle ways try to encourage them to really figure out whether this is right for them, you know. And and even though it probably is is a stupid thing from my own point of view to chase people out of my classes, but 
I mean, my, my feeling is there's a lot of people in every single college in America, not just mine. There's a lot of students there who, let's be honest, shouldn't be there. And I don't mean that as any kind of an insult or put down at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, no, I, that's not an insult to say somebody shouldn't be in college. Like it might be they're incapable of doing the work at that level. It might be they're very gifted in some other way that will not be accentuated by being in, in, in school or being, maybe they should be in college, but maybe they should be in a different degree path. Right. So that's, that's not insulting at all. I, I want to back up a little bit though and pull it back to historical context since that's sure. what we have you on too. But you said something I never really thought of before. When people say things like, oh, it was easier back then, if you said, well, in you know, 1968, you might have graduated high school or college and been looking at a draft notice on the other side of it. Yeah. True. Well, what I never really thought of is, okay, so, well, when was better? Well, the 40s, World War II, could have been drafted right. to that. Well, the 50s, right? We talked about that. Three years, you could have been drafted into the Korean War, and that was hell. Yeah. Right? By the time you're in the mid-60s or early 70s. So this whole nostalgic period, young men – we're basically being forced into combat. Yeah. And that's just like, I don't think you, I think it'd be very hard if we had a conflict somewhere in the world today, unless you had some kind of major nationalistic movement where a lot of the people you're drafting almost would have joined anyway. If you tried to draft 18 year olds today, I think you'd have open rebellion and burning buildings, right? Because it's such a foreign concept to that age group and demographic today. And it was just part of life for most people for that 40-year period that we view with such nostalgia. Yeah, the draft um, was, of course, active. They they started it, um, I think, about a year before Pearl Harbor, actually, and then stopped it after victory in the summer of 1945. But then uh, in the early stages of the Cold War, I, I want to say it was either 1948 or 49, somewhere around there, uh, the government reactivated the draft then, even though that was, you know, Korea was still in the future, just okay. out of paranoia about the Russians. Sure. And the draft was actually active continuously from about, let's say, 1948 until 1972 um, un under Nixon when the draft was stopped. So for like a quarter century uninterrupted. The draft was going even when there wasn't, you know, a big active shooting. Even though they weren't doing on. it, it was still yeah. there. It existed. It was possible. And I think that when I, I want to be clear with people out there with what I mean when I say I think you'd see open rebellion in the streets and buildings on fire. When I say if there was a draft, I don't just mean if there was a draft forcing people to go fight somewhere. I think if they started a draft like compulsory service like Israel has, which many people seem to think would be a good thing to do, uh, a much larger military force for our country, that, that, that's great. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, that if they did that, that this generation would burn down DC. I don't think they would stand for being forced into service. And I'm not saying that's good or bad or I'm not making any judgment on that right now at all. I'd have to really think about that. To say what I think that means. Uh, that's a deep philosophical uh, examination. But I think what it says is the concept of it is so foreign to them, they can't even conceive of a world in which it exists. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I would sympathize with them too, because, I mean, personally, you know, I, I always come down on, on the side of uh, individual liberty first, so. You know, I'm I'm not uh, yeah, from, not a fan of the draft either. But uh, no, the mentality is because like I'm sure when you grew up, you had 
adult family members, adult, you know, friends of family that were not the old guy, right? Not your granddad from World War II, like the guy that was like about as old as your dad or maybe a little bit younger that had been drafted into Vietnam and stuff like that. And so even though you're too young to have experienced it yourself, it's personal. Yeah. So with this gap now into this next generation, the, any personal connection to that is pretty much lost because let's face it, when a kid hears their granddad talk about being drafted in Vietnam, it's as ancient to the kid today as, you know, World War One was to us damn near. Yeah. 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 That's absolutely true. And, um, the, I, I think there was some benefit, uh, of having a lot of guys around who were Vietnam veterans, um, because they could kind of tell you a little bit of the truth about things sometimes sure. that you wouldn't hear elsewhere. I mean, I think I started to get some of my uh, cynicism about the people in charge from some of the Vietnam vets I knew when I was a kid, you know, uncles and, and things like that. Um, my dad wasn't in Vietnam. He, he just like lucked out on the lottery basically as far as the draft goes. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I have uncles and, and older cousins and things that were in Vietnam and, and a lot of them, even ones who still stayed, you know, pretty nationalistic and, and, uh, thought that was a war worth fighting, they still came away from it with this, like, cynicism and skepticism of the establishment, the government in general. You know, even I the guys who saw thought- a lot of their buddies left behind. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, they saw that the country wasn't behind them the way they were told it was when they got home. Uh, I think that there was a lot of, and I think there wasn't a clear, decisive victory. There wasn't really a clear, decisive end. And then in the end, whether you thought the enemy was the enemy or not, there wasn't a Hitler-esque boogeyman bad guy revealed at the end that meant no matter what happened, it was worth it because look how bad it really was. And I'm not saying that, you know, Pol Pot and others were nice guys in that region or anything, but they we didn't have that redemptive ending that made everybody a hero. So mm-hmm. if you're not a hero, you tend to be a little bit more honest, I think, if that makes sense, about what's wrong. Yeah, I think in our, our current situation with the all-volunteer military, one of the negative side effects, and again, I, I'm not trying to argue in favor of bringing back the draft at all. But one of the positive or sorry, one of the negative side effects of having the uh the all volunteer military is that the wars and the effects of the wars can be sort of, you know, shunted off to the side of society. Mm. It's not front and center in people's lives and consciousness and in their living room the way it was with Vietnam when anybody could be drafted who was the right age and a guy. It could be me, and if I'm too old, it could be my kid. And if and if and if I don't have a kid, it could be my best friend's kid. Or it could be my nephew. And now it's well, if it's my nephew or my son, he chose to go. Right. But the fact that I could have someone I cared about yanked into this mess made it personal all the time, or at least for many people, made it personal. Yeah, and it made people at least, regardless of their conclusions, I think it made more people. Just think seriously about the issues of of the war in a way that I mean it just seems like so many people in the mainstream today they they just treat our current wars and things in a very flippant 
childish kind of a way, almost like it's a sports game they're talking about or something. So video game culture, I mean, that's, you know, yeah, it's, it's Call of Duty. Yeah. And the, the media did a great job in selling that to us, showing us, you know, tanks being blown up under overpasses and the roads still being there and all. And it's one of those, it's like the, the war reporting today is like the, uh, the highlight film from the winning team from the game. Yeah. You don't see all of the mess ups and screw ups. You just see the, the, you know, the, the game winning play and stuff like that. And, you know, when you look at all of this though, as a, as a historian, um, and a teacher of history, and we hear the old phrase, you know, history repeats itself, what have you. As you look at history, what are, what are your thoughts for the, the, the future? I mean, should we be positive or negative in our outlook about the future? Or maybe positive or negative in the way, should we be skeptical? Should we be cynical? Should we be, um, not just star-eyed, I guess? Yeah, there's, there's definitely things to be concerned about. Um, and of course, a lot of them are, are the types of things you talk about on your show all the time. Um, there, there are, you know, potential disasters that could happen. And it doesn't mean they will happen, but they could. Um, there are trends and things. Some of them are obvious. Some of them are more subtle that do have eerie kinds of, you know, echoes of, of, uh, the times right before bad stuff in the past. So, I mean, I think that history does show that prepping or whatever you want to call it is, is certainly worth doing. Um, there, you know, there, there are some definite parallels in current times, I think, to the years right before World War One, which is almost exactly a hundred years ago. Actually, uh, um, last, uh, uh, summer was the 100th anniversary of the beginning of World War One, and I did some podcast episodes on World War One uh, when, when that happened. And World War One, one of the, I mean, it's just one of the most horrible, tragic, wasteful wars, and it led to most of the rest of the bad things that happened in the 20th century. Everything from the rise of communism to the rise of Hitler. And uh, World War One, the, the thing that makes it even more tragic is a lot of the the decades right before World War One. We're pretty good for a lot of the countries in Europe. You know, the economy, uh, was, was doing well in much of Europe. There was a lot of innovation, a lot of, you know, growing middle class, people's standards of living getting better. And so everybody was just kind of like, oh yeah, things are great. Um, you know, there won't be another disaster. Yeah. The last really big war we had was Napoleon. He was almost a hundred years ago. So no problem. And then, you know, people just got, got sucked into almost without intending to, um, this giant, giant conflict that ended up wiping out entire generations of young men and destroying massive amounts of accumulated capital and then you know leading to all the other horrible consequences of world war one and when you look back with the benefit of hindsight and look at like the tensions between the world powers uh prior to world war one starting and and the notion that you know archduke ferdinand's assassination was just really the spark that hit the candle. I mean, it could have been anything, right? And you start to look around at the world today and some of the, the tensions, you know, uh, like recently between ourselves and Russia. And I don't know about you, but I think a, a lot of the tension between us and Russia is totally unnecessary. It, it's, it's just, just flat out fabricated either through incompetence or deliberately. I don't know. I think but, it's a combination of both. I mean, yeah, yeah. we're, you know what? If, if there's where you get some historical context, 
grew up in the 1980s, MS, MX missile policy, etc. Everybody's finger on the button, and now we're going to have World War III over a conflict in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And for a guy my age, you just look at that and go, no, we're not. Yeah. <laughs> right? You just feel like, what? What? And it's not that we can't have conflict, but the whole concept that it's the, you know, Russia and the United States are going to start lobbing nukes at each other at this point. You just, I don't know if, if maybe I'm overly cynical about that or what have you, but I'm like, I think that the fact that we would all die is pretty well understood by both sides. And unless some lunatic takes over that, that, that Putin is not, right? We're not going to do that. And, and yeah. you know, I don't like our current president. I don't see him lobbing nukes at Russia either. I just, I, sure. I find the whole thing to be this, this part of the bullshit soup theory. And, you know, what can we do to get people scared so they'll listen yeah. to us? And I think that, like, my historical lens looking at modern history is we have the internet now and we have this interconnected society and people don't huddle around the TV for the six o'clock news anymore. And all these old media outlets are feel like they're going, look at me, pay attention, I'm relevant, I matter, and people are getting more and more to, yeah, I'm really more concerned about how big Kim Kardashian's butt is. <laughs> and I'm not saying that's a good thing there, but I am saying the fact that these old media outlets are dying, like, they're now moving to, like, they're going, okay, well, the tabloid crap's what works, fine, we can do that. We we can we can sensationalize things. We might not talk about Bat Boy, but we're going to tell people that if if some kid in Kansas doesn't get his measles vaccine, your kid could be dead tomorrow because of it. And we'll just ignore the real numbers from the CDC that say in 1968, little history, when there was no freaking measles vaccine, the death rate in the United States for measles was point zero 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 two six seven percent or two ten thousandths of one percent we'll just ignore that and we'll just freak people out and because you know what we can't talk about ebola anymore because that's not really happening so we we need something and 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 i'm seeing that is like a modern historical era this this last 20 years that's just it's cascading on itself now and i think what you're seeing my opinion as an amateur evaluator of this is i think you're seeing a dying entity in old school media and they uh-huh. can't accept that they're dying and they can't adapt quick enough. So they're just trying to go, well, if we have to, if we have to do what sells, you know, the sun on the, uh, on the checkout line, then we'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree um, with the notion that it's definitely not very likely that like, Obama and Putin would just start launching nukes at each other over Ukraine as much as they might like to bluster about it. Um, the one thing that concerns me, though, on that front is sort of like the wild card or the black swan thing. Um, the, the notion like nobody really intended for World War One to happen. You know, n- none of the leaders really were like, hey, all right, let's start, you know, this giant thing. It was a bunch of sort of unintended consequences, one piling up on the other. And so, um, you know, on, on the topic of like tensions between the U.S. and Russia, that that's more what I meant. Not not like, you know, everybody just lets all the nukes go at once. More like a conflict just sort of gets out of hand somewhere mm-hmm. um, and everybody keeps piling on and then it just gets huge. But and that, um, that's that, you know, that's possible. But and I think it's something we don't need to just ignore. But I think when we start getting this vision of 
Russia and the U.S. honking nukes at each other uh, over this one thing. I just think it's way overplayed. No, no, no. I, I, I agree with that. Um, uh, just the just the idea that the people in charge can sometimes unintentionally cause things to get out of hand was was my point. But I totally agree with you that uh, the internet is a game changer. The internet really is this new wild card that makes a lot of the old uh, examples, you know, the historical models of of how wars happen or how a society collapses when they do collapse. The internet definitely is something that has the potential to make things totally different, I think. Um, you know, it's impossible to imagine that there would ever be a total societal collapse now in the way that there has been, you know, in centuries gone past. Um, and the Internet's a big part of that, right? Because places are so connected that even if one part of the world had a massive, you know, decline in standard of living or whatever, the rest of the world is still going to have all the technology and so on. And because of everything being uh, connected in terms of communication and transportation, you wouldn't have really like a dark age in that sense, I think. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I think the Internet also is a game changer in the sense that it has the potential the potential uh, to give people the opportunity to really learn the truth and to rise above the sort of propaganda bubble and and the sort of you know simplistic jingoistic nationalism um, and and start to realize like you know a dude in China is just a dude like me he just you know is born on a different piece of dirt and is ruled by a different tax gang. I think know? that's one of the greatest achievements of the internet is to make people realize that these other people in these other countries aren't the evil bastard sons of bitches that they've been told they are. But they're yeah. just people just like us. When you can start trading instant messages with somebody in Kiev, all of a sudden the Russians aren't a bunch of big scary people anymore. You start to realize that they're being controlled by a government just like we are, and that it's the two governments, it's certainly not the people. And then when they show you these, you know, because you think of like propagandist imagery from the 1980s when I was in school. If they showed you a picture in Russia, there was never a sunshine, right? Mm -hmm. There was no sunshine. It was always some old lady in a babushka, right? And like a big line of people waiting to get cheese or something like that. And that image is just not accurate. To what life in Russia was like, or as my dad said, and many Vietnam vets said, that when you were in a jungle in Southeast Asia, you couldn't tell the communist jungle from the democratic <laughs> jungle at all. It yeah. was all the same. But you had to go there mm -hmm. to see that back then. And imagery and information was very tightly controlled. And now in this open source world, you can see the good and the bad. And the, the, the problem is, We don't have enough discernment, right? Mm -hmm. Our, because people just choose a, a, a piece of perception bias and then they look for confirmation of that versus what I've always tried to tell people you got to do is you have to say, assume everybody's full of shit, mm -hmm. right? You just assume immediately everybody's, everybody's lying and then find the truths within the lies. And you might find that source A in this instance is telling you 100% the truth, but you know, verify that. Don't just assume that it's true. Even when it's me talking, I can mess stuff up. I told you the Polish cavalry charged tanks because my history teacher told me that. 
And until somebody pointed out, hey, that's not what happened, and I researched it, I just believed it. So we can all be wrong. And if you're getting like, I love the people like, well, I get all my information from InfoWars. Yeah. I can't help you. I just, <laughs> I'm not saying that there's not any good information that comes out of that channel. I'm just saying there's a lot of bullshit there too. And just because you have counter bullshit doesn't mean you don't still have bullshit. Yeah. And there's an interesting generational split where the, um, the older generations, by which I mean, you know, the generations that are, that are older than you and I, yeah. um, the kind of boomers and up, you know, what's left of, of the older generations than that. Um, they're the ones who are, and I know there are exceptions. I, I know boomers who are like totally tech savvy and, and are, you know, more tech savvy than I am, but the, the older generations are more likely to just, you know, go watch the network TV news or read their, uh, paper that they read. And like, that's their source of information. And, and if it says it in there, man, it's true. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, these are people who still like, you know, look at it the way people used to look at Walter Cronkite of, oh yeah, we trust him. You know, he's the guy yeah. on TV, right? He raised my kids. And, uh, that's one thing I will say in favor of like the millennials is, and I think it's largely due to the internet. They are, I think, a little bit better about not just immediately swallowing uh, the mainstream, you know, media propaganda all the time. Um, they're, they're a little savvy on that. Well, that's, that's been my experience anyway, interacting with them all the time. At least they have the uh, like a sense of distrust. I think that's the big thing. Or they, I think a lot of times it's that that's just not where they get their data from. Yeah. Right. They just don't use that. You know, they're they grew up. The millennials, you know, grew up with a, a smartphone. Right. You know, they grew up with it. They this is. Their data comes from their phone, their tablet, their computer. A TV is when I want the screen bigger, right? Mm -hmm. Where people from my generation, you know, I remember, I remember five channels. Mm -hmm. and, and one was PBS. And when you wanted that one to come in, you had to bend the rabbit ears a certain way and put the foil a certain way to get it to come in because we were at the edge. And when we lived in one place, we had a big antenna outside and you used a pipe wrench to turn it because we didn't have a rotor. And I remember when you wanted to put, I think it was CBS on, you had to go outside and turn it. And my dad would be yelling out the window, a little more, a little more. <laughs> oh, there it is. And it would come yep. in when you wanted to change back. So people my age and a little older remember a time when there was a very limited amount of info. And I think that the divide comes from how old were you when that changed? Yeah. Right? Now, how old are you now? How old were you when that changed and you were exposed to it at work? Uh, mm -hmm. Most of us, our first internet experiences were through our jobs. I don't say all of us, but for most of us. And, you know, I grew up at a time when if you used a computer with a modem, you called another computer, right? And you called, you had a direct connection to it. And there were chat boards back then, but you had to dial in and only so many people could fit on it at one time. And it was like, you'd go back the next day and see what somebody said. It was like, ah, uh, it was, it was actually it was slower than a phone conversation. It wasn't two way. But then when I was in my twenties, And I got into a work environment with sales. You know, you're using a computer. I had computers. I still learned typing in school, but I also learned keyboarding in school. So when this came out, it was easy for me to say, oh, this is something new. I can use it. But it makes me think of what Joel Salatin said about, you know, like all these new farming methods that are actually old farming methods coming back. It's going to take new blood coming in because most of the farmers that are 60 years old. And when you're mm -hmm. 60 years old, you just don't care to learn anything new anymore. You know, mm -hmm. especially if it, if it takes work. 
right? So yeah. I think if you were about 60 in the mid-90s, with some exceptions, you just did, like my father-in-law, you know, he's he's 80 now. He does, in his 80s now, he doesn't, none of this matters to him. He doesn't mm-hmm. care. It's still, you know, whatever the nightly news says is true and whatever the paper says is true. If the paper said that somebody got something stolen uh, from the police blotter, then there's thieves in the area and we have to lock <laughs> everything up. You know, I mean, that's that's how real it is to him that it said in there that somebody stole something somewhere. Yeah, yeah. The, I I think there's there's the possibility because of of uh, changes like that. There's a possibility, and I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that um, the current generation of youngsters might kind of have some redemptive qualities like and i don't just mean for themselves individually but like might actually have a positive effect on the world might surprise everybody who's like oh kids these days and all that stuff sure you know um they they might surprise us in a good way and i think part of it is you know what we do in in uh, interacting with them it matters you know what what we do matters I mean, I know for me, that's part of why I went into teaching, and it's also part of why I started my podcast, is that good ideas don't just automatically implant themselves in people's heads. They have to be shared. They have to be taught. Um, and I'm sure that's probably, you know, one of the, one of the motivations in you starting your podcast as well, that, you know, kind of fighting the good fight in a way, right? Trying, mm-hmm. trying to, trying to spread good ideas. Um, because that's that's all we can do to exert whatever influence we can on trying to steer things in a more positive direction long term. Absolutely. So if people want to learn more about the work you're doing with your podcast, how can they do that? Yeah, the website is profcj.org, P-R-O-F-C-J dot O-R-G. And um, so far we got 50 episodes. I'm cranking out usually about one a week. Uh, that's that's what I can do right now because I'm not one of those university professors who teaches one class a semester <laughs> and takes off every other year and whatever. You know, I work for a living. I, I teach a crap load of classes and don't have any uh, assistance or anything like that. So um, anyway, propcj.org and uh, you know I'm on iTunes and Stitcher and all the all the usual suspects for podcasting. So um, hope your listeners will uh, come check me out there. Awesome, man. Thank you for the work you do. Uh, thank you for making a difference in the educational system, and thanks for being with us today on the air. Yeah, thank you very much, Jack. It's been my pleasure. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Professor CJ, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Revolution is 